Hi, everyone. Welcome to Toast and Topics. I'm Sachin. And I'm Ben. Now, do I hear a toast crunch sound in the background of that introduction? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what you heard. And by popular request among our audience, we were asked to add a toast crunch sound effect, given that our name is Toast and Topics. So I hope you like it. I think it's something that you can expect we will keep for the long haul. You know, I think it's appropriately crunchy and kudos to the audience for their, you know, creativity and perhaps neuroticism and uh, asking for this crunchy sound. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to having this be a part of future podcasts. Good. Same with me. So let's get into the topic this week. It's time to talk about a problem in this country that is near and dear to both of us as recent graduates, and that's student debt. Many of you are probably aware that the Biden administration was fighting for student loan forgiveness of up to $20,000, which the Supreme Court recently rejected. Payments are slated to resume this fall, so we figured that now would be a good time to dig a bit deeper into the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And so we'll start with some statistics to just underscore the far-reaching nature of student debt in this country. Currently, 43.6 million borrowers have federal student debt, and the outstanding federal student loan balance totals $1.6 trillion, which is an increase of nearly 360% since 2006. In fact, the size of student debt in the United States is now second only to mortgage debt, which is truly a mind-boggling statistic. And just bringing it back to you know a more individual level, the average public university student borrows about $26,000 to attain a bachelor's degree, while the total average debt balance for students can you know, be as high as $40,000. Um, so it's really a big problem uh, that we have this much student debt. And in this episode, we wanted to better understand Number one, what the drivers of this student debt have been historically. Uh, number two, what the Biden administration has attempted to do about rising debt via its student loan forgiveness policies, and also why the Supreme Court recently invalidated many aspects of these policies. Uh, and then number three, finally, we're going to turn to how these high levels of student debt might affect the U.S. economy. So Ben, given that you are more of a history buff than me, why don't you start us off by talking about the history of student debt relief policy in this country? The history of student debt relief goes pretty far back, but I think it's worth starting with the period during and a bit before the 1960s when student debt levels were actually quite limited. Tuition and fees at an average public four-year university totaled just $243 annually in the early 1960s. That's about $2,000 today adjusted for inflation. And laws at that time, such as the GI Bill and the 1965 Higher Education Act, made post-secondary education more accessible to both low- and middle-income families, stressing that education was, quote, no longer a luxury, but a necessity. Um, numerous scholarships and grants as well also helped students who had considerable financial need. Uh, this somewhat rosy picture in the 1960s began to change starting in the 1970s and 1980s due to tuition costs rapidly spiking. 
particularly for private universities. In real terms, average tuition costs for private four-year universities increased from $11,000 in the early 1980s to about $30,000 today. Wow, that's shocking. Um, In fact, there was actually just a Wall Street Journal investigation published a few days ago, which found that universities are spending more and thus have had to pass on those higher costs to students. The article stated that spending increased by about 38% at the median public state school between 2002 and 2022. And that was largely concentrated in salaries and benefits, athletics, and building renovations. Ultimately, this has resulted in a sharp rise in tuition, even at public universities, which are supposed to be more affordable. Yeah, intuitively, that sounds right. I'm a Coloradan, and I recently went back to Colorado to visit some family, and I toured CU Boulder, which is one of my state's flagship universities. The entire time I was there, I was just marveling at the quality of their facilities. Their gym, for example, had five floors and its own associated climbing gym. These kinds of things cost a tremendous amount of money, and it seems that a lot of those costs are being passed directly onto the student body. But in addition to the price of education going up, demand for education is also rising. While there were 8.5 million students enrolled in universities in 1970, there are now about 18 million students enrolled in university today. And so this combination of higher costs on a per-student basis and also increased enrollment in post-secondary education have created a really potent amount of debt. And that increase in enrollment comes as no surprise to me. I think that education really is one of the primary pathways to better life outcomes for many people in this country. And some stats to underscore this, college graduates are about half as likely to be unemployed as their peers who have a high school degree. Typical earnings for bachelor's degree holders are about $36,000 or 84% higher than those whose highest degree is a high school diploma. And college graduates on average make about $1.2 million more over their lifetime. So clearly it's important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There certainly are significant benefits to college education. And because of that, it's no surprise that recent presidential administrations have made some efforts to allow people to crawl out from underneath the uh, mountains of student debt that they are now under. So going to 2020, the most recent student debt relief effort came in the form of the CARES Act passed by former President Trump during the COVID pandemic, which granted temporary relief to borrowers by placing all federal student loan debt payments on hold, with no additional interest payments accruing. Um, And although payments were scheduled to restart that same year, borrowers got several extensions, including a recent push by the Biden administration to forgive up to $10,000 of student loan debt for eligible borrowers and up to 20000 in student loan debt for eligible Pell Grant recipients. Pell Grants are money that the government provides for students who need to pay for college, and unlike loans, they don't have to be repaid. The eligibility criteria for these policies are pretty lenient. Borrowers to qualify just had to have an individual income of less than $125,000, or um, as a 
pair of married borrowers filing jointly, um, $250,000. That's a pretty high income threshold to qualify for uh, this relief, frankly. Yeah, and right away, I could see there being some arguments against passing that policy. Um, The few that come to mind are, first, the national debt implications. You know, if we start paying money to borrowers, it will have to be financed somehow. And there were many concerns that this spending would raise our national deficit and make our economy more sensitive to higher interest rates. The second is that it could be inflationary. Spending on student debt relief was argued to run the risk of pushing inflation even higher, which I don't think sat very well at a time when inflation was already near 78%. And ironically, higher inflation would also hurt lower income borrowers more, which could actually be an unintended consequence of this policy that's intended to help them. And finally, it does skew forgiveness to borrowers who may not actually need it, as you just mentioned. I agree that $125,000 is a fairly high income threshold for forgiveness. And while debt forgiveness would be welcome for anyone, even at that income bracket, I think it raised eyebrows over whether the aid was really going to the right people or whether that money would be better spent on a far lower income bracket who are the most sensitive to these debt repayments in the first place. Yeah, these are all good points. My one retort to what you're saying is just that I can see a few other ways for borrowers to escape from the mountains of debt under which they are now buried. Um, Certainly in the longer term, I think that the nation might benefit from colleges going back to their roots as well, focusing more on education and less on investments in items such as facilities, which seem unrelated to their core mission. Uh, And so, you know, of course, the government needs to help now, uh, at least in some capacity, but I would like to see colleges doing more to lower tuition prices on their own in the future. Now, it might be pointless having this conversation even further because as things currently stand, the Supreme Court struck down Biden's debt relief proposal and argued that such a move should have gone through Congress. So given that you're also the government expert, leaving me with very little expertise now that I think of it, maybe you could help me understand why. Fear not, Sachin. We'll have ample opportunity to wade into your areas of expertise shortly. Uh, But the Supreme Court decision here ultimately boiled down to uh, they're not agreeing with the Biden administration's interpretation of a 2003 law that allows the Secretary of Education to, quote, waive or modify relevant statutes and regulations in emergencies. The Biden administration had used this law to cancel much of the outstanding student debt in this country, but the Supreme Court viewed uh, the Biden administration's cancellation of this debt as being far more than a modification. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that um, this law and the Biden administration's interpretation of it constituted a modification in the same way that the French Revolution constituted a modification of the Bourbon monarchy of France. Um, To be clear, the French Revolution overthrew the Bourbon monarchy and decapitated the king. So it was far more than a modification. And in that same vein, the Supreme Court viewed uh, this as being more than a modification as well. Uh, They also were concerned about the costs of the Biden administration's uh, student loan forgiveness policies. Uh, For example, the court cited a budget model prepared by the Wharton School 
of the University of Pennsylvania, which estimated that uh, this program could cost taxpayers as much as $520 billion. Wow, that's incredible. So I guess given that, I'm sure a question on many people's minds is what should they do if they have debt outstanding but can't afford to pay it back? Surely there are a lot of borrowers in that situation right now. Yeah, it's a good question. And the good news is that if you meet a certain income threshold, you could still be eligible for forgiveness in a slightly different form. Uh, For example, borrowers might consider applying for an income-driven repayment plan known as SAVE, which stands for Saving on Valuable Education, which ensures that loan payments are in line with your income and family size. So if you're a low-income individual, applying for this program would basically ensure that your monthly uh, loan repayments would be lower than an individual with a higher level of income. So pivoting a bit, uh, Sachin, I know I've hogged the conversation thus far, but I think we'd be remiss to not discuss the effects of student debt repayments on the economy writ large. And you are certainly the econ expert. You're someone who analyzes macro risk professionally. And so I think it would be great for you to talk about that before we wrap up. Sure, I'm happy to do that. So ultimately, based on research that exists already, It seems to be the case that the resumption in student loan payments won't actually sink the economy. The macro impacts are expected to be fairly mild at an aggregate level, but it will certainly have different effects across income brackets. As you can imagine, low-income borrowers will face the brunt of the damage. I remember reading an article that the average monthly student loan payment is around $180 a month, which is certainly a larger share of monthly spending on a relative basis the less you earn. High-income households, on the other hand, aren't really expected to be as affected due to a still strong cushion of excess savings from COVID, as well as higher wages that have realized over the past year. So we'll probably end up seeing some form of trade-down effect or a period where people reevaluate their spending decisions to be more skewed towards essentials. You know, maybe young borrowers will be spending less on clothing, beauty products, and alcohol, for example, which might actually be a good thing. But At the end of the day, the economy as a whole is projected to hold up fairly well. That's interesting. Well, you know, to conclude, that was a very informative conversation. Thank you, Sachin. And to our audience, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time where we will discuss recent changes in Japanese monetary policy, which is something that has come into focus after years of staying under the radar. Thank you all for listening to Toast and Topics. If you like what you heard, please rate and follow us on Spotify as it helps more people find our podcast. And if you didn't like what you heard, share with your friends and family members to see if they might feel differently. In any case, we'll be around. See you again soon.